What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my honored guest is my friend and yours, the great Marcus King. Thank you very much. First of all, congratulations on the Grammy nomination. And um, I hope you win because it's in March now. So um, it's well-deserved and very exciting times for you. It's, it's all very exciting. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So, you know, um, I we the last time I saw you in person in 2D um, was at a festival in Holland. Yeah. This was a couple years ago. And, you know, I don't consider myself a Nostradamus type, but I will take credit for this. And I said something. I said, I said, Marcus, you're the future of this thing. And I, I hate to, you know, blow up my already inflated ego, but I was right. You are the future. And, and you know, you're doing things now that are super exciting. You've, you've, you've lit a fire under this genre and all genres, really. And, you know, you're the talk of the town. So my, my hat's off to you. Congratulations and well-deserved. Well, thank you very much. And I remember that conversation well. And you had really, really kind words to say and really inspiring words for us to live by. And uh, if I recall, we were hopping in the van to go to the next city. So it was, uh, it was good to be able to run into you. Yeah. You know, um, so one of the things I, want, I, I wanted to ask you is, you, you know, you do a lot of different formats with the band. Um, the first time I saw you, you, you were nice enough to come on our cruise. You had a big band. You had the horns, keyboards, and the, it was called the Marcus King Band. And then you do a solo, a, a, do a solo side of it, and then you do a power trio. Like, like, I love the fact that you changed the formats up. Like, what makes that decision for you? Is it the material? Is it the tour? It's like, hey, I, I just feel like go out and play some power trio stuff, or I want to get the horns back, or, the, you know, the, the larger format. What's, what's that decision-making process for you? Well, the determining process for that really is, like you said, it's the material, you know. It's, it's solely based on the material. Um, well, with the exception of this, this pandemic period, we went out and did, uh, you know, some drive-in shows. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea behind bringing the trio out was, for one, we're working on a trio album. It's going to be more of like a, you know, early grand funk kind of thing was what we're kind of hoping to write material like that so nice. we wanted to go out and and perform it like they would have performed it so we brought out all of our big amplifiers and we thought that the drive-ins would be perfect for that setting uh you know because when you bring all your your big amps to the clubs people tend to get upset so the drive-ins were perfect for that but the solo stuff sometimes is uh it's not my favorite way to do it but you know we've all we've all been there at a radio setting or you know Sometimes the material lends itself to that, and uh, I'm happiest when I'm with my full band. Right. You know, I feel like I have more options there. But, you know, sometimes the material is what kind of uh, decides who I need on that stage with me. You know, um, one of the things I, you know, I love is that you play loud, and we are, we are vastly going into charted waters where the guitar somehow has become the onstage typhoid Mary. And, <laughs> and the amps go from this big to this big to this big. And I remember rehearsing for our live stream. We were rehearsing next to a very popular country band. And they came in, the band came in and they're like, they let you play this loud? I said, there's no they, it's me. 
You know, yeah. I play this loud and they they work around it. You know, yeah. part of that sound, like you say, is getting those big amps out there and, and moving air. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like it's not it's not something that you can do with a like a small combo because it, it is that big sound you know i mean yeah. and you get a great tone what do you what are you using for the trio versus the 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 the, the full band setup so for the trio um what i've been taking out with me i've been working with orange really closely on a on a signature amp that we'll be seeing this year it'll be coming out and they because they have the mk2 the mk3 they have the rock of herb and we we decided on the name uh the mk ultra Right. And uh, it took it took a minute to convince Cliff that that was a, an OK name to use. But we went with the MK Ultra and uh, it's it's got six L6s in it. I mean, it's it's just a really simple build. That's what I told Orange was I just want an orange amplifier that just has bass, treble, volume. I just want to be able to turn it on really loud. It's a 50 watt head. So what I've been running, I've been uh, on the road. I've been taking two of those and running each of them into a 412 cabinet. And this is my side of the stage now. So we have two 412s with the two 50-watt heads powering those. And then I've got one of Steven's base cabinets. And then right. I've got my, my uh, 1970 Plexi Marshall, uh, and I'm running two 412s with that. And then on the other side of the stage, I have another full-stack orange. And uh, I think that's just a rock of verb head, 100-watt rock of verb head. And then one of Steven's bass cabs for him. So we're kind of doing like a stereo thing so we can right. hear each other. And all we're kind of pumping into the mains is kick drum, overheads, and vocals, of course. That's great. That's like that's what the Allman Brothers used to do. The Almonds yeah. used to have – it was like everybody had an amp on each side of the stage. You know, um, one of the things that um, – that I, I was uh, interested in reading about you. You come from a very musical family from Greenville, South Carolina. Your dad, very famous Marvin, very famous blues guitar player in the mid Atlantic. And, and also your grandfather was a, was a, was a great musician. Um, tell me, you know, what it was like growing up in a musical household. Was it like, you know, cause my dad was a musician as well. So every Saturday there would be record day, you know, it'd yeah. be like, here, check out this Jethro Tull here, check out the Allman brothers, BB King. You know, what was it like growing up in that household with music and professional musicians playing? Well, uh, I think by the time my, my, by the time my grandfather got older, he got in his older age, he got not bitter about music, but he it had, it had been like it had become like a job to him, you know. Mm -hmm. So when he saw music and, and having been screwed over that much, it, it became less therapeutic to him. And that, that saddened me to see, but he always loved it so deeply. So right. when we would listen to it, it would be, um, you know, the music that brought him the most joy, which would be George Jones, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson. He loved Charlie Pride, who we unfortunately lost this year. Uh, my grandfather had the opportunity to back all these guys up and, uh, in the Ramstein Air Force Base because he was in charge of hiring the acts that would come and play on the base. Right. They'd come as a solo act, and he would have his band back right. them up, kind of a favor to himself. But um, that was my grandfather's thing. And you mentioned the Almond Brothers. That was my dad's groove. He spoon-fed me the Almond Brothers and early Leonard Skinner. And, uh, you know, we were talking about Jimmy earlier. I was on Wet Willie by the time I was like eight years old. So I right. had a lot of 
Southern rock from my dad. And he's the first one that introduced me to the blues. And, uh, and then James Brown, that's the first artist I heard on my own. That's when I started digging into soul music. Cause that was the one genre that wasn't really lying around the house. Right. So to speak. You know, the, the thing about, um, Southern rock is, you know, growing up in the mid Atlantics, the South, um, you know, all those, all those bands were around, you know, that, that was, that was, that was between the Carolinas, North Florida, Tennessee, you know, um, one of the biggest markets for Southern rock, believe it or not, was upstate New York, where I'm from. Now it's not, not, we're really, really not known for, for our great musical heritage up there, but we were really involved. We, Everybody in upstate New York, because it was so cold and the weather was so terrible, always went to live shows. And my first gig that my father snuck me into was Dickie Betts opening up for Greg Allman, both solo bands. They weren't the Allman Brothers, but the Toller Brothers and a young Warren Haynes. Yeah. And it changed my life. You know, um, what was the first gig you went to that made you go, you know what, this is what I want to do the rest of my life because there's, there's there's playing guitar in your room and then there's like now i want to get involved with the scene and play there's a few that i can think of um because it happened in different stages uh, seeing my father perform you know i saw him performing in church i saw my grandfather performing in church and i said okay they're they're doing it i don't i'm not sure if this is exactly how i want to do it and then when I started gigging on my own and I started uh, fronting a band at, at a young age of like 13 or 14, um, I'd have older musicians in my band. So they were my chaperones and they would take me to see other bands at these clubs. And I think uh, the North Mississippi All-Stars would probably be the first band I saw where I was like, yes. Right. They're loud. They're going for it uh, at the Handlebar, Greenville, South Carolina. I played there. Yeah. I know you know that. Uh, I actually, when I saw you at the Peace Center years ago, you told a, a really great story about the about the handlebar. <laughs> yeah. The the handlebar, I mean, we used to play the, was there, there was a place in Raleigh called the, the Double Door. And, yeah. you know, that, that was the, the, the one thing that I fear about going through the COVID um, years. Z- um, is we're gonna we're gonna lose a lot of these clubs that nurtured generations. You know, I'm a generation ahead of you, and I I played those places. You played those places, and it allows you a, an opportunity in a in a in a in a platform for for working stuff out in front of a crowd. You know, and you know, tell me about what makes a great live show because i can give you my example some nights i suck absolutely i'm the worst right everybody deserves a refund and the fans that come and go that was the coolest show i've ever seen what <laughs> weren't even there yeah and secondly you know like my band we have a lot of session guys we'll play no perfect everybody pats themselves on the back it's a big party on the bus and look how good we are and then the fans go nah suck What's a good live show for you? Well, you know, I'll give you an example along with it. When we played uh, the Electric Factory in uh, in London, uh, 
in the borough of London called Camden, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, we played there. Is it the electric ballroom or the electric factory? One of the two. And it was just a gig where everything just went wrong. My drummer and I were going to get in a fist fight on the stage. You know, <laughs> I had just gotten a, a 69 Black Beauty that I carried with me on the plane. It was a guitar I had wanted since I was a kid. So I carried it with me everywhere like a puppy. And it, it took a shit on me on the stage. It just quit working. And it was uh, during this transitional thing we had worked out in Soundcheck where we were going into uh, going down to Mexico, which mm -hmm. is just a guitar part. Right. So if the guitar is gone, there's nobody who can really pick up that slack. And right. a situation right. where we had to stop and I had to switch guitars and jump right back into it. But I was like, oh, my God, that was such a dog shit set. Oh, my God. We're done. We're never coming back to London again. Right. They, they hate us. And uh, the next, uh, over the next few days, the London Sun gave us a five out of five star review. And I, and for me, the answer to your question is I think people just like to see real. They like to see unrehearsed. They like to see, uh, you know, the breaking of that fourth wall when you say, all right, yeah, this is this is show business. Everything's falling apart. Right. You can't help it. And really, they they could tell that we were giving them everything that we had and that we right. were exhausted and everything was breaking and we were frustrated. So I think a, a good show is just giving everything you have when you have nothing left. Right. A hundred percent of whatever percentage you show up with. You exactly. Know? And it, you know, you're such a great singer. When did you discover that voice? Because when I first saw you, I, you know, I, I was like, Man, you can shred, and then you sang. I'm like, well, looks like I'm. I need to, you know, go into the antiques business or something like that. I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> put out. I'm like, Mark's gonna put me out the pasture. A bunch of us out the pasture. Like, when did you when did you know that that you can open your mouth and it's like, oh, there it is. That's really kind of you, um, and I appreciate that. I uh, when I was 13 years old, again, I, um, you know. I had experienced some trauma in my life. I lost uh, like my first, the first love of my life, the first girl that I really loved at 13, as much as you can love someone. She passed right. away in wow. a car accident. And it was really, really, really hard for me. And then my grandfather was really ill and everything felt really cold at that time. So I was playing guitar constantly already. That was my, my only dear friend was the guitar. And uh, and then one of my actual friends that I made passes away. So I needed another outlet to kind of um, express the sorrow, you know. And I feel like, you know, up until then, I had been taking mainly Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin and Janis Joplin riffs mm. from what they were doing vocally. And I was trying to get that out of my PV Bandit. I was trying, and, and I had my boss overdrive. I was trying to recreate what they were doing by just playing it, you know? And uh, and people like Derek Trucks are really good at that, and uh, and yourself, and, and guitar players, I think, have always emulated the human voice. Mm -hmm. and, and I also tried to emulate a lot of tenor saxophone players like Sonny Rollins and, uh, and John Coltrane, and them a couple. But at that point, I was like, well, I, I think I'm going to start singing and try to get some of this out. Right. So that's one thing I learned from my family is outward expression through music, because we certainly weren't talking about our feelings. Right. <laughs> so that's what I started yeah. singing. Yeah. 
you know, I, I say the great vocalist, you included, when you talk and you sing, it crossfades. B.B. King, when he talked and he sang, his speaking voice sounds like his singing voice. And you have that. And that's not that's that's not that's not something you can go to the vocal coach and go, OK, OK, coach. You know, make me sound like Paul Rogers or B.B. King. Okay, la, 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 la. You know, I unfortunately, were bo- I, I was born, I was born with a, with, with a voice that sounds like a cross between Kermit the Frog and, and, and some like wise ass, you know, talk radio host. Okay, so I had to make, I had to make some shit up as I went along. You know, you, speaking to you now, I go, you crossfade. And that's, how do you, singer, we all know this. Five nights a week, belting it out two hours a night. You're a chatty guy, you're a social guy, yeah. speaking on the bus, you know. And you know, how do you how do you maintain the the instrument that instrument on on the road? That that is a tough one, and I, I love. I just have to comment on your previous point. I really love that. That's such a tremendous compliment to get, because I've noticed that with my favorite singers is the crossfading of their speaking voice and their singing voice. And the first time I really, really felt it in person was with Chris Stapleton. When he laughed, it sounded like a Chris Stapleton song. And I got the chill bumps. I got them now. Because right. I was like, oh, my God. That's just hit in him. But yeah. to answer your question, uh, on the bus, you know, I've, you know, I've, I'm what they call like a, I'm, I'm a little introverted. You know, I'm not, not that outgoing. Uh, but you, we all have to do meet and greets and, and those those are frustrating because you know if the opening band sound checking or if there's loud house music that's that's the things that are the hardest on the voice so when you're trying to talk in a bar yes. that's the most taxing on the vocal cords but just talking like this I can do this all day and it doesn't hinder you know it, it almost even strengthens what I'm going to do later on stage but, uh, but trying to Here's somebody in a bar that's just, it's yeah. not good for the vocal cords. So I just, before COVID, I just started saying I was sick and I couldn't really talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't want to do that now. Yeah. If you ever want to like, clear out a meet and greet going forward, just go, yeah, I'm not feeling so good today. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had this, I, I had this, I had this burger for lunch. I really couldn't taste it. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole lobby clears out. Believe me. Yeah. I thought about it. Um, you know, what do you do when you don't have it? You know, you got to go on and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's always you can always postpone the show. But, you know, if you're yeah. you're stubborn, like probably stubborn like me, like, fuck it, I'm going to I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, do you have a Do you have an A, an A show, a B show and then an oh shit, I don't really have it. And then you, you kind of just <laughs> use the melodies and the and your musical gift to kind of get around it. Well, man, you know, we, we never postpone. We, we have in the past just from pure exhaustion and and we had to do some, uh, you know, some moving around of, you know, uh, you know, uh, employees. We had to personnel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, personnel, exactly <laughs> the word I was looking for. So it's happened. But we like you said before, we give 100 percent of the percentage we showed up with and uh you know, we, we do have an A tier, we have a B tier, and sometimes those C tier shows, 
just kind of come out of nowhere. And I can think of an, another example. First time we played in Dublin, we were so tired and the, the bus had to leave us because they couldn't park there on the street. So I, I took a nap on a hardwood floor next to a little space heater because there was no real heat in the dressing room. So I slept on this floor. Oh, yeah. And uh, I woke up and they were like, you ready to play? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> I don't want to. I just want to sleep. I'm so tired. And we're at Wayland's. Uh, and we were all just going down the stairs, so morose. And uh, we got to the bottom of the stairs and our bass player said something that just made us all laugh. Like a real belly laugh, punch drunk laugh. And we got on the stage and that song or that uh, that show was one of the best of the run. And it's just, I don't know how to explain yeah. that. It just happens. But, you know, that was our, to, to sound egotistical, that was our, our worst show, but it ended up being one of the better ones on the run. You know, I always I always tell the, the, the band, anybody, when, when it's time for pay raises, or Christmas bonuses and, you know, they'll be like, you know, I'll get sick on the road and struggle through a few shows and stuff like that. And, and I go, I go, the shows that go well, I'm cool. I'll play for free. It's the 10 shows a year that I struggle through. That's when I earn my money because, (laughs) because, because, you know, it's like, we're not an instrumental band. You're not an instrumental band. They come to see you sing and play. So if you're just like, we're just going to play some instrumentals tonight. Everybody's going to be like, well, why did he sing? You know? And, and it's, and it's, you're, you're the whole, you bear the responsibility and the weight of it all. And as you go along, you know, one of the things you want to navigate through is not resenting that resenting, you know, like when the crew guys go out and party and they, the band guys go out and party, like, you don't have to fucking sing. You know what I mean? I'm stuck in my room, you know, watching cable, you know? (laughs) Talk to me. Like, I read something about you that that was really inspiring and kind of brought me back to my own experience. Um, When you were decided to turn pro, you dropped out of high school, okay, to pursue music. And then retroactively went back and got your, your, your high school degree and, and, and then studied jazz theory and, and, and performance. You know, my mother always said, because I was a child performer and by 10th, 11th grade, I checked out and be like, yes, I'll do it. But I, but I, she says, you know what, son, nobody likes a stupid guitar player, you know? So I, she made me go through the iterations to, to get my, my high school degree. And I, I find that so admirable that you did that because you could have just walked away and been like, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, but you went back, got the degree and excelled at the music as well. You know, like, you know, when you, when you dropped out, did it always occur to the, in the back of your mind that you were going to go back and, and finish that process or was just something that was like, you know what, this is something I, I need to do. Well, I've always been a big believer since I was a kid. I had a, bio, a biology teacher, Mr. Niedermeyer, Niemeyer, and he said to me, uh, delayed gratification is going to get you mm-hmm. through. Right. And I've always stuck with that. So as soon as I dropped out of high school, I went the next day to the equivalency place and enrolled. And I got my high school di- equivalency diploma before I would have graduated uh, regular high school. I just couldn't be in that school anymore i couldn't be there i was so spent um with the people and just all the bullshit clicks and just the teachers that they all hated me 
And in, re- in, in you know, looking back on it, you know, none of them knew what I was up to. They thought I was just a burnout. They right. thought I was a stoner that slept all the time, which I was a stoner that slept all the time, but I was working diligently towards a career, but they had no idea about that part of me and that I was performing every night. That's why I was so uninterested in education, but they did not know that about me and they were very judgmental. They told me I was going to end up in prison if I dropped out of high school and you know, they were just very unkind and looking back on it, I'm sure I was not the easiest student to teach, but there were a couple of teachers I I really still care for. But um, yeah, I went and got the equivalency diploma and my father supported me in that. You know, we, we had lots of long conversations about it and he could see that I was making the right decision because it was thought out. It wasn't just a, fucking I'm out you know what I mean right. I didn't yeah, drop yeah, the yeah. mic and kick, right. kick the door open it was thought out you know um some of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life have never never finished high school and some of the dumbest most arrogant people I run across have have just stacks of a credit you know credits and <laughs> degrees and and I knew that as a kid I'm like, I'm like, you know, taking meetings in New York with record companies and these people, you know, like pontificating. I always called it Pontificus Maximus, you know, you know, like all of a sudden they become they become Roman and speak Latin, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, you 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 don't play, you you know, you got a you got a you got a poli sci degree from 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 Yale and you're telling me how to make music, you know, um, why jazz theory? When you when well, you when you just studied it, so the the timeline on that was, I was studying jazz theory in high school. It was uh it was considered my uh, uh, like all the other kids would go to vocational school and study welding or whatever, and I was lucky enough to go study at the Fine Arts Center in Greenville, and I still donate to them, and I donate guitars to them because they helped me uh deal with school in the slightest and i studied with steve watson there who's a, just a wonderful guitar player and he he played on uh he was in dolly parton's band on dolly the tv nice. show and uh he played with the brecker brothers for a time and he did like the guitar parts for the a team and like hill street blues and all that he nice. was just a big la session guy and uh he and bruce hornsby were uh uh, roommates in college and uh, they all moved out to LA together but just a really accolades out the wazoo and just a really sweet guy and I knew him you know as Steve you know mm-hmm. as a guitar player around town I'd run into and then I started going to him as an instructor and he just taught me a lot and uh, he knew what I wanted to be as a performer and he he helped me become who I am today he gave me more of a vocabulary and more of a just an understanding of music theory in a way that I could communicate with professionals, which right. is what I wanted to be, you know. You know, uh, did they, did, did my guys use the Nashville number system, okay? Mm-hmm. And they start speaking, it sounds like they're speaking in tongues. <laughs> or, or, you know, it's like, I, you know, it's like if the song's in the key of F, right? I wrote it in the key of F. I, I know enough theory where I know this is F. The piano backs me up. 
hundreds of years of music back me up. They're going, are you writing this in C or 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 uh, or, or E flat? I'm like, it's in F. It's in F, and it drives me nuts because I'm like, you're like, no, no, no. It's easier if we write it in C, and then I'm like, you guys are like on a different. I go, I'll be an F if you care to join me in this adventure. <laughs> you know, you guys can play it and see. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about being a guitar geek is two things. Tell me about the 355. I think it's a 61, the red one. It's a 62. You, you, 62. We just and and um, they're hard to date, those those guitars. The serial numbers overlap. But uh, And you that was... Was it your grandfather's guitar or your father's guitar? My grandfather's guitar. That was a, that's still a point of contention with my, my father. He's hell-bent on believing it's a 58 because the serial number indicates that it's a 58. Right. Serial number. But everything else about the guitar says otherwise. Right. Uh, my, my theory is that that neck may have been laying around longer than that body had been produced. But... What we do know for sure is that my grandfather bought that and a 64 Fender Super Reverb in Great Falls, Montana, when they were stationed there. And I think 1965, he bought those two. Wow. Um, he wanted to get a, uh, he wanted to be, he was like a Buck Owens guy. He wanted mm -hmm. a Telecaster. And this was, uh, you know, the mid 60s. And when he found this guitar, it's a, it's a 345. And it's, uh, it's got, kind of a Hank Garland thing to it with a sideways yeah. vibrola. And um, yeah, he, he sat it on that guitar and he loved it and he played it every day for his whole life. And he passed when I was 14 and my father got the guitar and kept it until I was 18. And that's when I first went on the road. We were taking our van up to New York City. Mm -hmm. And he said, something in my spirit just told me, you need this. And it's going to be your guiding light. It'll it'll show you where to go. And you take this guitar with you and it'll tell you where to go. And I took it with me and um, never steered me wrong. How do you keep it in tune? Those sideways things yeah. are, are uh, difficult, to say the least, on the best of days. But you, I see you play it and you're like, I'm like, man, I have one that's the same guitar. And I'm like, I don't know how he keeps this shit in tune. Because like a couple of leads and a couple of bends and it's like it's over. But you're you're rip. I mean like it, it, how do you how do you do that? Well, uh, I will I will say one thing. Uh, the guitars around my house. We I grew up around guitar players, but there were no luthiers in the family, and right. we knew how to change our strings. That's about it. Mm -hmm. So we all I I relied on my ear a lot when I was a kid. Not having knowledge of how to set up a guitar. Mm. It was like, well, no matter how much I tune it, this G string is always going to be out. That's just what life is, you know. Right. So I learned right. how to play in a way that, you know, if something's out, I can make it in. You know right. I mean? And that's a worst case scenario. And I, I would never tell my guitar tech that I use that <laughs> to lean on. Yeah. But with that 345, I didn't have the tailpiece on because my grandfather had taken it off years ago, mm. and. When I found it again, uh, I put it back on. Jim Lillard put it back on for me at Gibson, mm -hmm. and he uh, he restored it back to its original glory. And that's when they they gave me something I could take out on the road. 
that's when we started flying a lot more and I right. wanted to leave it at home. And uh, since then, we've made a replica of that guitar. And uh, underneath the bridge, we've we've shirted it up a little bit more. We've locked down that vibrola system mm -hmm. to make it a little more true and stay in tune a little better. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Some guys they put a block in them, and you know, I know I know Gibbons does that, and mm -hmm. you know, it sounds great. You know, like you're one of those kind of players that you can play. I seen you play a Tele. I seen you play a Strat. I see you play 335, Les Paul. It doesn't matter. You have this, this. What a lot of people don't realize that the sound of that, of Marcus King and whoever's playing are in here. You know, um, talk to me about working with um, Dan on El Dorado. You're, you're Grammy nominated. Um, yeah. um, uh, new album. Yeah. Um, man, I've, I've described him this way so many times. It's just second nature to me just to immediately do the, the Captain Ahab. I, that's how I see him. I see him like a nautical, you know, storybook character. You know what I mean? I see yeah. him behind the console, uh, behind all these channels and all these knobs and switches. I see him through the glass. He just looks like a, an old-time warship captain. And he can <laughs> see on the horizon and he sees where we're going. And he knows what we need to do to get there. And it's not like he's making crazy calls, but he's really confident in his crew there. I mean, he's got Gene Chrisman on drums and Bobby Wood. And, those, mm -hmm. and these both, both of these cats were on the Dusty Springfield Son of a Preacher Man and on the Suspicious Mind sessions. Yeah. And uh, Dave Rowe on bass, played with Jerry Reed for years. And, uh, Michael Rojas, one of the greatest pianos of art of ever. So, I mean, we've just got just this incredible band. Billy Sanford on guitar, he wrote the riff from Pretty Woman. So just this band that I'm just so enamored, I'm just so taken aback by them. And they're there to play on my session. And Dan was also playing, but his production style is just so efficient. Mm -hmm. And we get to work at nine in the morning and... We cut 18 songs in three days. Wow. Oh, <laughs> we, we were cutting six or seven songs a day. Wow. We used this, the number system, and we'd play them the work tape that we had written the song, and they'd put together, and Dave Rowe would write out the chart, and then they'd print out copies. We'd go in there, we'd run it once, maybe twice, and we'd cut all the, all the basic tracks in three days. And, wow. Uh, yeah, that's... That's that's what I'll say about Dan is he's an efficient producer. He's you know like those guys you know there's there's the Wrecking Crew from California you know the Tommy Tedescos and the Hal Blaines and and you know the there really needs to be a film and maybe there is and I, and I just haven't gotten to it on Netflix but there really needs to be a film about the six one five Wrecking Crew because like you say all those guys you know. You know, you know, guy like Bobby Wood, you know, it's like suspicious minds and, and and you're going, they were there, they created a lot of that sound sonically that, you know, yes, the songs were brilliant, but it's how they interpreted those songs that made them classic records, you know. Absolutely. You know, and when I heard your record that you did with Dan, it sounds like a Marcus King record. It doesn't sound it it, it sounds like Dan just took your strength and and elevated them and 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 brought them to another level and, and my hat's off to you. Do, you. do you know what you get with the, with the Grammy 
uh, nomination? Be hip to that? Yeah. They send you a medallion. Now, I'm a two-time loser, okay? <laughs> two-time loser. Like that. Okay? And I, I didn't go the first. I didn't go the the two times I was nominated, I was either on the road or I was in the studio. And once I heard that 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 Charlie Musselwhite and Ben Harper were playing in the pre-show performances, I said, I'll, I don't need to put the suit on for this, okay? <laughs> Thing comes and goes, okay? Don't think anything. I was just honored. Thank you. Okay, yeah. nice. We'll put it on the poster. And um, about six weeks later, I get a little blue Cartier box, okay? I'm like, holy crap, they sent me something? Nara sent me something? And it was a little medallion. And it's got the 59th annual Grammy nominee. And there's a little print underneath, you know, for, for us losers. Me, me, me. It says, on the little, it says underneath, it says, your star shines bright, but not bright enough. <laughs> that, no, it's a, it's a, no, I made that up. No, but you do get a medallion, so it's, it's nice. You know, um, what I want to talk to you about... Um, a little bit before we wrap up is I read, uh, I think it was, I, I lose track. They're all under the same umbrella now. It's either a guitar world or a guitar player article. I was on an airplane over the summer and I read an article that you, you did. And, and, you know, of course they try to clickbait shit that you say, but you're just in an interview and you say stuff. I've, I've been clickbait and, and, and they use it on the front case. It's like, who said I, whoever said I was a blues guitar player? And I go, that's the best thing I've ever heard because, <laughs> because the whole thing about it is you know, like when people categorize, you categorize you as a blues guitar, you're like, I never said I was a blues guitar. I love the blues, right. but I also love everything else. And I kind of do an amalgamation of it all. You know, I, this is a stupid question, but, but, you, what do you consider yourself, a, a, a blues bass player, or or just a musician? And I have free reign to do whatever I want. Man, I I've always just considered myself an an appreciator of American roots music, mm -hmm. and um, I read Victor Wooten's book when I was about nine or ten years old. I read it, and one of the first chapters he mentions being a musician, and not being a bass player but being able to let your voice shine, shine through on whatever instruments in your hands and just speaking loudly from the soul. And the guitar right. happens to be that for me. And blues happened to be one of the first styles of music that I cling to really, you know, in a, in a intimate way, because it was such a, there was such longing and there was such sorrow in these words that I related that I, 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 I had my own sorrow that I wanted to convey and the blues happened to do that for me. But I, I, I did, I did say that in the interview and I, I never said I was a blues guitar player. Uh, I'm such an appreciator of the blues and I, I, I hope that I can be an ambassador of this music and, and educate people about the, you know, the real deal blues that I, that I grew up listening to. And I think it's such a beautiful art form. But I, I guess I consider myself just uh, an American musician. I just love Americana, American music. Right. And and that's the whole point, you know, because I, I, I've said that in the past. I'm like, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm categorized as a blues player. I've made blues records, but I have not. I, I don't. I, I mean, Jethro Tull is just as much of an influence as is Muddy Waters for me, you know, right. because of of how I grew up. 
you know, and 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 this this notion of now everybody's got to fit neatly into these boxes. It's like, oh, we'll just put you in this blues box or we'll just put you in the rock box. It's like, yeah. you know, Robert Randolph is nominated for best contemporary blues album this year yeah. at the Grammys. Yeah. And I asked him, I'm like, I'm like, congrats. He goes, I guess I'm blues now. I'm like, OK, good, <laughs> right. good for you. You know, we're all blues. Anyway, we're all blues. Marcus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, anyway, Marcus, you know, I've said this to you personally and, and publicly. I said you're a superstar. And wow. and and I think in 10 years, you know, or five years or 12 months, it's just a matter of time. You know, I'll be sitting here in my my place here in Nashville and I'll, and I'll look down the street and you'll be headlining the Bridgestone Arena. I, I, I'm going to say it first, okay? Because I want credit, okay? I need something, <laughs> something positive. Um, but I think you're a superstar. Um, one last thing, like, wh what are you doing? Um, you know, what are your plans for this year as far as actually getting out and playing in front of humans, which is seems like a novel concept? Yeah, well, it uh, all signs are pointing to a mild winter, so I'm hoping for an early spring. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for us to get back in those uh, drive-in amphitheaters and, you know, maybe some socially distanced uh, outdoor amphitheaters and let's just get people together as close we can mm -hmm. and, uh, and try to make, make some live music happen. Uh, probably around April or May is what I'm banking on. Cool. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I think, I think my, my guess is between, between early summer and early fall, at least it'll be come it'll come back in some sort of way you know i mean yeah. <laughs> if, if if not i'm i'm going to go take a couple of sets down in lower broadway i i i know luke bryant tunes i could play that I, hey man i'll be there with you come on yeah, let's I do it play let's, bass. yeah we'll play yeah i'll yeah i'll 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 and I'll, I'll try to sing i have a hat everything you know <laughs> marcus king thank you very much for being here you're you're a superstar and and, and uh, me, Joe. no problem Ladies and gentlemen, the great Marcus King. This has been live from Nerdville, from Nashville, Tennessee. We're both in Nashville, but we can't get together now. Anyway, yeah. eventually we will. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for watching. Tune in next week for another exciting guest. This is Joe Bonamassa signing off.